Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Power in Weakness. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 10, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Overflowing with Joy. I wonder how many of us know the inner turmoil, even grief, that many faithful pastors suffer. You know, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul will speak of his imprisonments and beatings, and then, not done with that, he adds his daily concern for all the churches. It wears on him. Even more, I suspect, than the physical abuse and persecution that his ministry has attracted. You know, there's an old story that comes from the era of the Puritans. You know, a pastor of a small congregation was complaining to a pastor of a larger congregation, and the pastor of the small work felt insignificant. He hadn't achieved great success. And the pastor of the larger congregation wondered why the pastor of the small church was complaining at all, for on the day of judgment, he would not have to answer for the spiritual well-being of a greater group of people. He, he should have been thankful for fewer souls that he would be held accountable for. You know, that little comment should help us understand what's happening inside the hearts of faithful pastors. If pastors are faithful, they do pray for their congregation. Some do it quite systematically. I I knew one pastor who weekly published the names in the church directory whom he had prayed for that week. And I knew that pastor quite well, and I can assure you that's exactly what he had been doing. His people's spiritual well-being was fundamental to his work. He believed he was a shepherd of their souls, and so he agonized before God on their behalf. You know, furthermore, many pastors, while visiting the sick and standing with those who are hurting, often feel that, that they don't even have an outlet for their own personal burdens. Who shepherds them or even knows how to? Would it shock you to know that even the great Martin Luther was subject to such moments of darkest depression that his own family would remove certain objects from the house. They were afraid that in his darkest hours, he might even do harm to himself. It was said that on one occasion, Katerina, his wife, once entered his room dressed in the traditional clothing of a mourner. When Luther asked her who had died, she simply responded that, given the way Luther was acting, perhaps God had died or his eternal promises had died. See, I want you, my hearers, to understand that faithful pastors suffer for the sake of ministry. They're often on the front line of attacks of the evil one, even while at times their closest friends aren't even aware of their inner anguish. I don't want to paint an overwhelming picture of gloom. You know, I, for one, am overwhelmed at the privilege I have had to serve as a pastor for about 35 years. And furthermore, I have been at most times treated very well and appreciated. I've often received notes from faithful saints who had been praying for me. And furthermore, the rewards of my ministry, at least as I've seen it, so much greater than the toll it has taken. When I left my last ministry, I had a lineup that took me several hours to get through. People thanking me, hugging me, until the very last of the lineup, I'll always remember this, you know, a group of 16-year-old young men with a basin asking to wash my feet. I was so overwhelmed. Tell me if the price I paid was more than the reward I had received. But there is a side to pastoral ministry that involves intense spiritual warfare. I mean, so much so that it often feels overwhelming. And as we've studied the book of 2 Corinthians, we've noticed how transparent the Apostle Paul has been about his experience. 
Uh, We had noticed that he has been the subject of some rather harsh criticism. You know, it was being led by some very prominent people as well as false teachers. And then we noticed that he spoke of being burdened beyond his strength to endure. And then he spoke of being afflicted and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. But even while he spoke of those things, Paul was clear that he was not crushed or driven to despair. God had sustained him, especially when he was at the end of himself. And furthermore, Paul had come to realize that this experience of being comforted by God led him to be able to comfort others who were also in despair. So God was training him. It was on-the-job training, all from the hand of a comforting God. And in the midst of the criticism he had received in Corinth, Paul still had the grace to offer forgiveness, call for the full restoration of a man who had sinned and now had sought forgiveness. We found that back in chapter 2 where Paul urged them to forgive the one who was repenting so that he may not be overwhelmed, he said, with excessive sorrow. It's amazing. An apostle who had once despaired of life itself is now concerned with a man whose own sin brought him to the point of sorrow. That man had probably been Paul's enemy in the past. But now this faithful pastor, Pastor Paul, is looking to restore him and to prevent too much sorrow. That's the heart and the burden of a faithful pastor. Yes, Paul wants a strong stand against the false teachers who have managed to find their way into the church at Corinth. But he does not want to give up on love. And that, as we all know, is always the danger. You can win the battle against false teachers and in the process become harsh and judgmental. And once that takes root, what I call a a spirit of judgmental fundamentalism takes place. And Paul, in the midst of the harsh things that were said about him, shows a side of his nature that should give all of us hope. You know, as we read through our passage today, I trust that both pastors and congregations will find hope. We're studying 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 10. And in verses 2 to 4, we're going to find the call of a maligned man calling for his people to overflow with joy as they relate to one another and especially to him. It's a call for unbridled love, for thankfulness between pastor and people. Then as we read the long section of verses 5 to 9, we will find Paul's description of how a very nasty situation turned out to be a very sweet situation. It's a portion of Scripture that all pastors and all congregation members who are going through a difficult time should study very carefully. I will simply call this section, Hope for Troubled Congregations. And then at verse 10, summing it all up, We will examine the role of grief. What is grief? When is it helpful? And when is it a sign of death? So then let's begin with a call for full reconciliation of grieved people. 2 Corinthians 7, 2-4. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Let's start with that beautiful appeal. Make room in your hearts for us. Paul knows that he and the Corinthians have had a a very rocky relationship. And back in chapter 6, verse 13, he used the words, widen your hearts. Show a greater capacity for love than you ever thought possible. Indeed, Paul is asking for the Corinthians to receive him with love. And might I add here, it is Satan's design to sow discord among believers. 
Back in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul said that we are not ignorant of Satan's designs, and therefore, let's not let the devil outwit us, you know, sowing discord among us. Make room in your hearts for me, he says. And then in order for false rumors not to take away from his appeal for love, Paul then states three things that can be proven about his ministry. First, he says, we haven't wronged anyone. Now, to this charge, and indeed to all three of the charges, I have no doubt that Titus, who had been sent by Paul to Corinth, had now come back, and Titus must have reported to Paul about what was going on, and no doubt he had made mention that some had made charges against Paul in the past. One of the charges, he takes advantage of people. Now, the Greek word advantage, to do wrong, occurs several times in the New Testament, It almost always refers to an injustice that might have been done. You know, it can refer to someone swindling someone else out of finances or physically harassing someone. But Paul had refused a salary in Corinth simply because he was aware how easily these accusations were made out there. And so he had already undercut those who loved that kind of accusation. He says, no, no, I haven't wronged anyone. Second, we haven't corrupted anyone. No one has done anything immoral because of us, nor have people believed false teachers because of us. Third, we've taken advantage of no one. If you go forward to 2 Corinthians 12, 17 and 18, he asks them point blank, did Titus ever take advantage of you? And the answer, of course, was no, he didn't. And Paul is here turning the matter of rumors onto its ear. Rumors are easy but exact, concrete examples of what someone has done, that's harder to come by. See, Paul is forcing the Corinthians to admit this. The charges against him have proven to be unfounded. If you make a charge, you have to be required to back it up using concrete examples. You know, every once in a while, I'll hear someone say, where there's smoke, there's fire. And they mean where there are persistent rumors, well, there's got to be substance to it. But if that's the case, well, we're all vulnerable to Satan's design. It's simply untrue. Persistent rumors don't prove anything. Objective facts do that. The past number of years, Back to the Bible Canada has been blessed to offer a unique Israel experience. A journey to the Holy Land under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, discovering first-hand locations across Israel so prominent in the Bible. On every occasion, those in attendance have agreed it was a spiritual experience of a lifetime. Now's the time to plan ahead. In April of 2021, Back to the Bible Canada is offering our next Israel experience, and we want you to attend. Join an intimate group of brothers and sisters journeying across Israel under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld and experience events and activities that will include Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and hosted by the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Plan to attend. Take advantage of having plenty of notice and register today. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Some in the Corinthian church had listened to baseless rumors of improper conduct on behalf of Paul. And Paul rightfully confronts that activity. He knows they can't produce 
concrete examples of abuse. There have been none. But rather than condemning the Corinthians, Paul is appealing to them. He tells them they're in his heart, that they should die and live together. You know, it appears that in the time of Paul, there was a very common expression. It was well known in the wider culture, to live together and to die together. You know, when people committed to living and dying together, they were committed to a lifetime of friendship. And the idea is that, you know, friendship is enduring, goes through all of life. It manages to get beyond all the difficulties in life. It continues to forgive. It carries on to the point of death, living and dying together. We never stop being friends. We never stop making room in our hearts for one another. We live together. We die together. That's what people who are committed to each other used to say to each other in those days. But here in Paul's letters, he takes that familiar word order and then he turns it around. Rather than living and dying together, he starts with dying together and then he goes to living together. You're in our hearts, he says, to die together and to live together. And so we have to ask, why that change in word order? See, I think the answer is that Paul is expressing something that's fundamental to the Christian faith. You know, perhaps Paul was thinking of Jesus' words, Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, the starting point of the Christian faith is to die to self, to live for Christ. Until we do that, we're never the Lord's. Or perhaps Paul, when he changed the word order, was simply reemphasizing what he had said earlier. You know, back in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 11, that we who live, he said, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That is, you know, you don't start on this journey of bringing Christ to the world until you're already committed to dying. It's basic Christianity, Christianity 101. You don't live first and then die. No, no, to be a Christian, you die first and then you live. But whatever Paul was thinking when he reversed the common word order, one thing remains. Paul knows that he and the Corinthians are not just friends for life. They are partners in the gospel for life. And the very nature of the gospel means that they would give themselves to each other, die together and live together. Paul never saw the gospel ministry without them. The Corinthians were not just his ministry project. They were his friends and partners. They were like comrades on the battlefield, displaying a fierce loyalty to one another, both in death and in life. I mean, what can break that loyalty? Nothing. Not just your apostle and pastor, he says. I'm your friend and your partner. And then in verse 4, Paul admits that this kind of talk exemplifies that he's acting in great boldness towards them. In other words, I'm being forthright with you. It's as if I've broken common social norms by bypassing what people say in polite society, and I'm speaking as directly as I know how. Now, some of you might know that there are other translations who will translate this very same phrase as, I have great confidence in you. Not, I have been bold towards you, but I have great confidence in you. Now, whether Paul means to say, I'm acting boldly, or I have great confidence in you, I mean, one thing is absolutely certain. Paul wants himself and the Corinthian church to not only speak openly to each other, but that the result of their conversation is love that overflows with joy. See, I've noticed that in some circles, when people speak openly, well, they end up saying some things that are very, very hurtful. Have you noticed that? Someone says, I'm going to speak openly about how I really feel about you. Once that's said, you know, the other person winces and says, well, I guess here it goes. 
And then that person begins to speak about hurts and anger, frustration, disappointment, a sense that the other is just out for themselves. I mean, all manner of things get said, and once they're said, you can't unsay them. I mean, after such conversations, that is, after people speak boldly, well, quite often, there's no way back. There's a breach in the relationship that's enduring. You know, so from our vantage point, when, when anyone says, you know, I'm not going to filter what I think, or I'm going to speak openly about what I really feel, <laughs> that's often a bad sign. Not so with Paul. When he speaks boldly, he wants an expression of love. He, he wants people to say things they might have never said before. Things like deep thankfulness for each other, pride in one another, deep comfort their relationship has provided for each other. Those are Paul's bold words. Uh, let me say this. For whenever our boldness towards each other is filled with statements of deep, enduring love, nothing can result but joy. And then Paul tells us why he's felt so bold. Verses 5 to 9. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. See, in order to understand this passage, we actually have to go all the way back to chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. You might remember that there, Paul wrote, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. And when we studied that passage back then, we remember that Paul had been in Troas, and even though the Lord was blessing his ministry there, Paul, in his own words, found no rest. Titus wasn't there. Paul had sent Titus to Corinth to deal with a growing crisis in the church. He knew that some were angry with him and others were confused and the false teachers were having a heyday. And so Paul could find no rest while he was ministering in Troas. So he traveled to northern Greece to see if he could find Titus there. And according to our passage today, that is in 2 Corinthians 7, even there in Macedonia, he found no rest. There were external conflicts. There's also deep fears within. Again, in case you misunderstand, Paul is deeply afraid for what might be going on in Corinth. But here, let's not misunderstand his pastoral call. Paul is a shepherd of those he has led to Christ. Like the pastor who prays earnestly for his people every day, Paul is filled with reports about both the rejection of his apostolic office in Corinth and the headway the false teachers were making. He's overwhelmed at how large a threat is being leveled at that church. Paul knows that Satan has his guns trained on the Corinthian church. He wants to destroy that church utterly, and by so doing, destroy one of the great beacons of the truth of Jesus in the nation of Greece. But then Titus showed up, and as the two men sat together, Titus told the story. After Paul had sent that painful letter to the church in Corinth, Revival had broken out. Sin was confronted. Repentance was flowing. And with all of that, 
Paul has time to reflect on the place of grief. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Start with the last part of that sentence. Worldly grief produces death. Well, in relationship to sin, that is certainly true. See, all sorts of worldly people do grieve over sin. But to the most part, they end up grieving over the consequences of sin and not over the actual sin itself. They grieve because of the toll that sin has taken on them. You know, relationships were destroyed or reputations were damaged, especially their own. So there's grief, but Paul says it leads to nothing but death. It always does. But godly grief, what's that about? It's about genuine repentance. And genuine repentance leads to salvation without regret. You can grieve deeply over your sin, and it leads you to trust more fully in Christ. And that leads to an overflow of joy alongside of healed relationships and renewed vigor. And so Paul's filled with joy. Yep, he's been anxious. You know, he's been through times in which his soul has been to the point of despair. But now Titus has shown up and has told them that all of that grief had produced genuine repentance. He is now overflowing with joy. And he wants the Corinthian church to rejoice with him and to renew and redouble their efforts for pastor and people to love each other. John, I think this is a really engaging subject. You know, I don't think I've met many pastors who haven't gone through a dark time or a dark season. And sometimes they feel unworthy of the role that God has called them to do. Are they? No, they're not. Um, They should have been taught before they got into ministry that they would face an overwhelming spiritual warfare and that these would be seasons in their lives. They should have been told of godly saints. You know, I you know I talked about Luther. I could have talked about others. You know, especially Spurgeon, who went through such dark, dark valleys and confessed it to his congregation. Even and many were just shocked. But it should not overwhelm us. In fact, we should anticipate it, expect it. But we should also see that in the darkness we will find the joy of God. It will be there. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Power and Weakness right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share with you how blessed and encouraged we are that God is using this ministry to impact so many lives across this country. Recently, we received these words of encouragement. Thank you for the great role you play in the lives of Canadians and around the world. Shauna wrote, Your work has enriched the lives of countless people. And finally, may God continue to grow His army and kingdom through your work. We're so grateful. Your efforts, your support of Bible teaching makes this ministry possible nationally and globally. So make sure to check out all the ways Back to the Bible Canada can support you in your spiritual journey. So many of our Bible resources are available to you for free. To learn more or to support this Bible teaching ministry with a financial gift, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.